Hi, and thanks for clicking to listen. If you're in the UK, I really hope you're okay with all the extra juggle from the school strike childcare conundrum. I just wanted to quickly let you know that we've decided to open an initial group on our fellowship program in spring, and therefore we've extended the application deadline to the 23rd of March. Apply if you want to turn all the things that we discussed on the podcast into action. Details are on leadersplus.org.uk. Another factor that we don't often think about, but I'm hoping is becoming more and more evident, is that asking for help, especially outside your family unit, is experienced differently by different cultures. Welcome to the Big Career Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti, and I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, brilliant people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children. And that leads to gender inequality and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organizations. We must change this. And I hope that many of you listening to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible, where you make decisions that make our world a better place. Thank you for listening. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. You can find out all about our work on the website and the best way to be kept in touch with things is the newsletter on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. This episode is my first mother-daughter interview. We talk about how to stop overthinking, what it was really like for the daughter Sophie when her mom travelled the globe for work when she was young, and we discuss how to ask for help without feeling guilty. I have to say, in this particular recording, I did it in the evening because, of course, US time that morning, and you might hear a bit of background noise of my toddler who sometimes was quiet, but then also at other times was not. So thanks for bearing with that. And I'm sure you will enjoy the conversation regardless. So my name is Deborah Grayson Regal. I'm an executive coach and a keynote speaker, a workshop facilitator, teacher, and writer. I teach at business schools ranging from Wharton and Columbia University. I write books. I write for Harvard Business Review. And I facilitate coaching and training all over the world, specifically around how leaders communicate. So that's everything from presentation skills to difficult conversations to how to talk about mental health at work. Wonderful. Sophie, shall we come to you? Yes. So that was just my mom. My name is Sophie Regal. I'm a senior at Duke University, and I'm also an author, a speaker, and a coach. And I have written one book on my own and two books with my mom. And I speak all over the country about mental health and and asking for help and overcoming overthinking and all of those sorts of topics that we're going to talk about today. Fantastic. And can you just tell our non-US-based listeners, what does it mean being a senior and what do you study at uni? I'm in my last year of undergraduate studies and I'm studying psychology. Fantastic. Great. So I'm going to ask you, Deb, a question that we ask most of our podcast guests, which is, what did you believe about combining a big career with children, with young children? that you don't believe anymore? 
This will sound very self-serving considering that the book that Sophie and I wrote a year ago was about getting better at asking for help and offering help. I think what I believed was that you got more credit for doing it with less help. And now I do not believe that to be the case at all. I wish I had asked for even more help and I had plenty. I, we lived among my husband's family. So Sophie's grandparents and aunts and uncles, we had a tremendous amount of help and I was afraid to leverage as much as I needed. Mm, interesting. Sophie, can I ask the question? So you don't have children, as I understand. She's shaking, shaking her head. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been an interesting surprise for you, Dev, I'm sure. So what do you remember about your mother working? Do you, do you remember her working when, when you were a child? Have you got a, memories of her being at work or going to work? I do remember my mom traveling a lot and being really sad when she traveled. And my dad made it up to us by letting us have takeout food, which was great. But I also remember specifically, mom, when you were went to China for a month, I remember that on the wall of my bedroom, you made a calendar and each day was a new envelope for me to open. And it had a letter and some sort of treat in it. And that was the most helpful thing to get me through not having you around for a month. But I always remember, even if you were gone, you you made sure to call, you made sure we had everything we needed. So I never felt alone. And how old were you then? How old was I? I think you were nine. Oh, when you made the calendar? Yeah, nine or 10. Yeah. And how do you think your mother working affected you? Well, I have an awesome role model for how I want to work and the work-life balance that I want. And my mom is an amazing mother and an amazing businesswoman, author, speaker, all of these things. So she's really taught me that you don't have to be one thing. You can really be all the things you want to be and be excellent at them. That's really interesting to hear because I mentioned to you before, we've never interviewed a child, as in someone, you're not a child, but basically someone who doesn't have children. This is very bad, isn't it? It kind of shows that how I categorize people, I need to stop doing that. But I think what's interesting is that so many of the listeners, and, and I would include myself in this, will always feel guilty. Like I, We're recording this in the UK evening, and my child was very upset that I went downstairs. They're obviously perfectly happy with their dad. In fact, they settled much quicker, probably, because they might know that he's, you know, he's actually less of a pushover than I am. And I think, yeah, it's really lovely to hear your story of your mother going away and that that actually didn't, it sounds like that didn't damage you in any way. In fact, it made you feel really appreciated that you made, she made such an effort with the whole calendar thing. Definitely. I think there was still some separation anxiety, but that was not my mom's fault, except for the anxiety genes that she passed down to me. Yeah, I'll just pop in. I mean, I, I know you're asking, Sophie, but I'm very well aware that my travels were hard on everyone. And I think mostly Sophie. I think they were particularly hard. And my husband, Michael, brought my attention to the fact that it wasn't just hard when I went away. It was hard when I came back. And what made it hard when I came back is that the three of them had really established a really good rhythm. And I came back in as if I expected everybody to drop what they had been doing and revert back to my version of normal, which wasn't their version of normal. And that was really helpful feedback for me to get from my husband that 
yes, it was disruptive on one end for me to leave. And it was even more disruptive when I came back. And he gave me that piece of feedback in a way that was meant with positive intent. And I, I've still been thinking about that feedback for many years. Mm. And do you think the experience of you being away and completely giving over the reins to your husband and letting them figure it out, do you think that changed your relationship with your family? Did it change my relationship with my family? Well, let me back up one second, because I often think there is a sense that a dad who is taking care of their kids is playing Mr. Mom, quote unquote, right? Or doing the mom's job. That is not how we saw our family. That's actually not the way the family that I was raised in thought about those things. I was raised in a family where parents had equal responsibilities. I raised my kids in a house where, if anything, dad had more responsibilities than I did. And so I didn't have the anxiety associated with, I hope he can do these things. That was not an issue. Or I hope he's willing to do these things. That wasn't an issue either. I think having any parent away repeatedly or for a chunk of time can have an impact on a family. It just happened to be me. Hmm. I think that's really, really positive to hear because sometimes, especially after COVID, you're not used to traveling anymore. And then we all, all started traveling some further than others. And it sounds like the two of you, we are still an extremely strong family unit. And I know there are other members as well, which is fantastic. Let's come to your work together. Sophie, what surprised you when you started to work professionally with your mom? I don't know if surprise is the right word, but I was really glad to experience my mom treating me as an equal partner, even though there is a power dynamic normally in our relationship because she's the mom, I'm the daughter. But when we worked together, we really did everything 50-50 and it, it felt like, it really did feel like a partner and not a mom. What was it like for you, Deb? One of the things that's interesting is that neither Sophie nor I like group projects, right? Both of us have very high standards, work pretty quickly, are very independent, hold ourselves to a high level of accountability. And so I was surprised that our collaboration was as easy and painless and dare I even say fun as it was considering that both of us would actually rather work alone. Amazing. And tell us about the topic. Maybe, Sophie, you want to start us off with it. When did you first get interested in that topic and what made you write a book? So I've been interested in anxiety and mental health and quote-unquote overcoming overthinking ever since I was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder in seventh grade. I was about 12 when I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. And then the, the diagnoses just kept rolling in. I've been speaking about it for a while and writing about it for a while, but I hadn't taken it beyond a personal standpoint. And in the book, we really have concrete fact-based strategies that we talk about that are obviously they, they have a personal relationship to me, but it's not, the book is not about me. It's not about my mom. It's really about the topic. I know that many of the listeners too feel that they sometimes overthink whether they're doing the right thing. They might be thinking a lot. I don't know if that's what you mean with the book, but they're thinking a huge amount about the children when they're at work. They're thinking a huge amount about at work while they're with the children, even though they want to be present. Do you have any reflections? I know it's a simple one, but is there something 
that they could start doing to address that overthinking, aside from obviously looking at your book? So Sophie and I are going to go back to one of our favorite quotes from Dr. Susan David from, uh, I think, Harvard Medical School and Institute of Coaching over there, which is when you're experiencing a tough emotion to ask yourself, what the funk, meaning what is the function of this emotion? And if you ask yourself, what is the function or the very sound purpose of me overthinking worrying, catastrophizing, ruminating, any of those things. It's typically to remind you that there's something that you really value that might be feeling threatened. So I value connection. I value community. I value togetherness. I value, you know, any of the reasons why we might have decided to start a family and to first acknowledge that the overthinking and the feelings that precede the overthinking or come as a result of the overthinking are because there's something really important to you. And I just like to suggest having a moment of gratitude for the fact that there's something you care so deeply about that it can cause you pain and distress when you think about it. So I, from a big picture perspective, I think that means that you are living a life with some purpose. If when something you value is causing you some degree of distress when you can't have it. So that's the first thing that I would do is to recognize that that overthinking is is functional until it becomes less functional or even dysfunctional. And so, you know, ruminating and catastrophizing and blaming yourself are all, you know, cognitive rational strategies that are are helpful until they aren't, right? They help you sit up and take responsibility until they actually start to interfere with your thinking and functioning. And so there are some more helpful strategies that you can use than catastrophizing, ruminating, blaming, those sorts of things. So first strategy is, you know, what we talk about in the book, Overcoming Overthinking, called Name It to Tame It, which is by literally naming your emotions, you're actually taking some of the power out of it. I'm noticing that I'm feeling anxious. I'm noticing that I'm feeling guilty, right? And to actually create that distancing language. So not I'm anxious, I'm guilty, but I notice that I am feeling. That's one technique. Another thing is to, you know, reinterpret its meaning, right? I feel guilty that I'm traveling. One interpretation is I'm a bad mom, right? Another interpretation is I'm modeling for my kids the importance of working hard, right? Having responsibilities that are independent of them, the, you know, the beauty of adventure or travel, right? There are other ways to interpret this. And I would say one other thing, because I could talk about this for the whole hour, but I don't want to, is to really separate out the, the facts on the ground from the stories that you're making up. And this is one of the strategies we talk about in the book. So the fact is, I am on a trip. It is a story that I'm a bad mom because I'm on a trip without my kid. So if you go to the fact of I'm on a trip, you can make up any story you want. You might as well make up a happier story if you're going to make one up anyway, which is I'm on a trip and look at this. I get a little me time and I'm a better mom and person when I have me time. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to lean into that belief. So those are just some of the of the strategies. Mm, and I can see that working really well with the guilt, which so many people experience, actually. Mm -hmm. And Sophie, with your perspective as not being a parent, do you have any view? Like, does that seem remotely familiar, this idea of people feeling guilty all the time about not doing enough with their children? What's your response to that? 
The only thing that I have experienced that is even close to that is when I leave my dog and I, I know she's going to be okay. I know she's probably taking an awesome nap and it feels hard to have to watch her sad face as I close the door. And I, I wish that I could be there all the time, but obviously this is a little bit different than, than a parent, but also I do a lot of coaching with parents and a lot of them have experienced very similar ideas of wanting to create strong boundaries and wanting to be with the kid all the time. And so that's a really hard thing to to balance well. Mm, interesting. Actually, I mean, it's really interesting how much sense you're talking, even though, and this is very patronizing, but, you know, even though you're starting with the experience of, of a dog, which is so, I love dogs, it's a really lovely thing, but it's exactly the same thing. I can picture, you know, it's exactly just the face of a child at nursery who you know five minutes later is going to be very happy and probably your dog is going to be ecstatic running around the park with someone else who looks after her or him. But it's that moment that stays with you. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I'm interested in the topic of, of help, which you both talked about. Obviously, you have done a lot of work on communication depth. What made you start getting involved in thinking about getting help, asking for help and offering help? Well, I figure if it's something that I'm bad at and I write a book about it, I have to get at least a little bit smarter about it, right? I would be a very non-credible resource if I didn't insist on getting better at it as, as part of writing it. So part of the motivation for writing the book that we wrote together, Go to Help, was COVID. So during COVID, people started needing unprecedented acts of help, right? So when I was growing up, nobody ever called anyone and said like, can you help me teach my seventh grader how to do something? Nobody ever said, I have no toilet paper and can't find any for 10 miles. Can you help? Right? So people started helping each other in ways that we weren't used to admitting we needed help for and weren't used to helping each other for. And so it became expected that we would need help and expected that we would give help, which I think is a shift in something that can often feel vulnerable. So that was number one. Number two is, you know, Sophie and I have often spoken about the importance of asking and offering for help for those people who have mental health challenges. The idea being that we often think that we should go it alone. We need to go it alone. Nobody will understand us. Nobody will help us. And that actually creates darker feelings rather than, you know, hope. And so we we talked about it in that context of what if everybody who, you know, had a mental health illness or a mental health challenge knew that they didn't have to suffer alone, that there were there were ways to get help. And then the third thing is that my brother and my sister-in-law had a baby who was born with a congenital neurological disorder. And it was pretty clear after a few months that he was going to die as a baby. And everybody wanted to help. And there's absolutely nothing you can do to help the parents of a baby who is going to die really soon. And so I was observing this mismatch of people's intentions of wanting to help with how it was received, which was not really helpful despite people's good intentions. And I was just really, really curious about what motivates people to try to help when in fact, it's clear it's not helpful. Mm. What do you think try uh, motivates people to help in those situations? 
I think a big reason why people help is because they're actually uncomfortable with the other people's negative emotions. So for example, if my mom and I are having a conversation and she's having a really hard time with something, it doesn't matter what it is, my automatic reaction is probably to try to fix it for her because I'm uncomfortable with her feeling upset or angry or anxious or any of those things. And so I the, I really have made it about me instead of making it about her and asking her what she needs. It's very interesting, actually. So we do interview for this podcast quite a lot of senior leaders who are very successful and they say exactly the same thing, you know, say, get yourself help, get yourself help, etc. But yet nobody really does. And even you, Deb, you know, <laughs> even you admit that it's taken you a while to ask for help, even just for the practical things by the sound of it. What's the reason why people don't ask for help, do you think? and try to struggle and be the heroine of sorting everything. Yeah, so one of the pieces of research that I found fascinating was that starting at around age seven, we start to associate admitting that I don't know something or can't do something by myself. We associate that with a risk to our reputation. That if I admit I need help, others will interpret me as less bright, less capable, less strong, less competent. So if you think about that, starting at around age seven, that neural pathway starts to get carved into our brains. I mean, I'm 50. So that's 43 years of something running through my brain. It's pretty hard to reverse something that is so you know deeply wired within us. And so I think from the leaders that I speak with, in my coaching work, a big part of it is concern about reputational risk. What will people think? Will I show up as less competent? Will people be worried about giving me big assignments you know, or promotions if they think I can't do something on my own? Another factor that we don't often think about, but I'm hoping is becoming more and more evident, is that asking for help, especially outside your family unit, is experienced differently by different cultures. And so I know, for example, I've got a colleague whose family is, I think, I want to say Thailand, perhaps. And in the Thai culture and in other, you know, far Eastern cultures, that's within your family, right? You ask your family for help. And to ask for help outside your family could be embarrassing you, embarrassing your family. And, you know, and and that's just one example of one culture. And so to be really mindful of different cultures treat asking for help outside the family differently, plus the fact that we have this neural pathway that says people will think less of me, it actually becomes quite complex, which is why we wrote a book about it, to take something that we think is simple, that is actually very complex. So we leaned into the complexity and hopefully made it simple again, but just with some new and more helpful strategies. Just to add to that, I think a a big reason why people don't ask for help is they don't understand And we in general don't understand that there's so many ways to help. If your boss says, go get help, a lot of people think I need someone to teach me a skill or do it for me or whatever it looks like. But help can be so many different things. And we talk about 31 different ways to help. And so um, when you have a broader definition of help, I think you're more likely to actually seek help. Mm. What was the most surprising definition of help that you've seen in your work, Sophie? I guess it's the thing that people don't think about. 
letting people make mistakes. I don't think we have a chapter on that in our book. I don't remember, but I, in a, almost every coaching conversation I have with parents, they want to do something so that their kid doesn't make a mistake. And through questions, they realize like my kid needs to actually make this mistake to learn. And so I'm helping them by not doing it for them. If you want to turn the things we discuss on the Big Career Small Children podcast into action, do consider joining the Leaders Plus Fellowship. We have also hardship fund spaces available, should that apply to you. Even today, only 9 in 100 FTSE 100 CEOs are women, and it's a new story when there's both a woman CEO and woman chair of the board in the same organisation. And a big factor is that so many people's careers plateau when they have children and also want to be present with them and enjoy them. If you also believe that caring and responsibilities should not exclude you from becoming as senior as you like, then definitely consider joining the fellowship program. You'll become part of a group of parents who feel the same, all very different from backgrounds, sectors and so on, but are passionate about the same thing, which is combining ambitious careers with young children. You'll be part of a nine-month program, which is all designed to give you the courage and tools to progress your careers and also help you with practical things such as setting boundaries so that you can be as present as you want with your child. All the details are on leadersplus.org.uk and the deadline is 23rd of March. I think there's something interesting in what you said linked to bravery and courage because you do need to just take the risk and let people make mistakes. And anyway, that's the much more harder thing than, like you said earlier, Sophie, about fixing it for you, which then makes you good because you're the hero who comes in and sorts it out. And I want to pick up on the reputation topic. I'm sure a lot of listeners will relate to this, this idea that you potentially lose face when you ask for help, especially let's say you ask for help with a mental health problem at work, or you ask for help because you want to leave at three o'clock to pick up your child. How do you in your view, make sure that you're still seen as this high-flying potential senior leader, if that's what you want. Yeah. So one of the ways to think about asking for help is the fact that as a leader, you have an opportunity to model it for others, right? So if you are a leader who doesn't ask for help, your team is likely to infer that you should not ask for help, right? Oh, you know, Deborah's my leader. Deborah seems to do everything herself, which means that you're having hidden help, right? It just means that you're you're not out about the fact that you're having help. I better not ask for help because Deb is doing everything herself. And I, by the way, have been very, very open throughout my career about the fact that there isn't anything I've done myself, anything. I've always had help. I wish I had asked for more help. And so if you are thinking about the potential negative impact on being seen as a leader, I'm going to invite you to think about the potential positive impact of what you can create in your culture as a leader, which is that we ask each other for help. We recognize and reward each other for asking for help. We appreciate when people offer help and accept help. And that's the kind of culture that I want around here. I like that. You're quite good at flipping perspectives, aren't you, in a really helpful way? Thank you. That's nice feedback to hear. (laughs) Sounds like it's a bit about trying, just trying and seeing that the response might not be so bad. 
if you do it and, and the positive response might be much better than you expect because like you say is it the culture of the organization by doing that mm-hmm. interesting what about then the whole mom heroin syndrome where someone thinks they have to they somehow we've adopted and this it sounds like that's not true for you because you've had really equal relationships even you know in your uh, parents families but there are quite a lot of people who listen to this who I know want to do it all and they know on paper it's not the right thing to try to keep on top of the washing and be the superhero when it comes to all the cake bakes with school and be a senior leader but they still feel got feeling wise they have to do it because of the culture we grow up in how do you then ask for practical help and feel okay about that in such a situation I don't know that this directly answers the question, but one thing that I often ask my clients is how do you want your kids to view you? And if you are doing everything all the time, your kids might be viewing you as being too busy for them or view you as, you know, a workaholic or any of those things. And if a parent says, you know, I want my my kid to view me as being really supportive and empathetic, there are other things that need to take priority over doing everything all the time, all by yourself. That's really wise advice. And you're so right, because it's just, they will also see you if you're a woman and you do everything, that that's normal. And it really shouldn't be normal. So that's a really good point. Is there anything, Deb, you want to add? So I guess one of the things that I hope I would ask myself is, what is more important to me, maintaining a reputation or actually being present, happy, focusing on what's most important. And of course, it's an artificial either or. I want to have a really you know powerful reputation. And I also want to be present for my, my kids and my family as well. But if you think about how much of not accepting for help and not accepting help or asking for help is reputation management. I kind of hope that would gross you out a little bit, right? Like I am putting myself at cost, putting my mental health at risk, putting, you know, the care of my children with potentially a burnt out parent at risk because I want to show up a certain way. I think that's worth poking at a little bit. And I would also imagine that even if it doesn't look like you have somebody to help clean the house or it doesn't look like you have somebody that you can hire to walk the dogs or those sorts of things, you are probably getting help in ways that may not even register for you. It just seems like, oh, that. So for example, you know, having somebody else prepare your taxes other than you, that's getting help. Having somebody manicure your nails or cut your hair rather than you doing it yourself and we tried that at home during the pandemic. That did not go well. It was a disaster. It was a disaster. And I had to, I tried to cut my husband's hair because we weren't going out. And I did such a terrible job that I started crying and Sophia had to come in and fix the mess I had made. But you are taking help in ways that aren't registering that for you. So think about it as less binary, right? I either get help or I don't get help. And think of it as more analog, which is, oh, I'm actually already getting help in other ways what does one or two more ways of help really matter once I know that I'm somebody who does get help? And I think it's also important to remind people that when someone asks them for help, they almost always feel honored. And so when I'm asking someone for help and I'm thinking to myself, 
I don't want to be a burden. Um, I should be able to do this by myself. I often remind myself, people are wanting and waiting to help me. I just need to make the first move and ask. Mm, that is so true. My child was in hospital a lot in the last 12 months, and I'm not someone who enjoys asking for help, I'm afraid to say. But we had to. There was absolutely no way around it because we have two older children and just the logistics. One parent has to stay with the child in hospital. The other looks after the other children. And so if you do want even just an hour to go and shower, then you do need help. There's no way around it. And it was such a transformational experience to ask for help and to see the happiness and joy that I was giving. I'm not exaggerating to people who, who were happy to help. It was such my friend really loved to do it. And I'm not saying I'm now reformed help asker. I still, we've just started having a cleaner and I feel endlessly guilty about it. <laughs> Even though I know I shouldn't, but you know, not that I was doing the cleaning. But I, I will just, so two things. Number one is, is your little one okay? Uh, yes. Okay. okay for now. But still, we might, the good thing is now we know, we didn't know before, but now we know that we have people who help us. And yes. we don't have family nearby, so it means a lot. Yeah. And I just want to, you know, if it makes you feel even better about asking for help, there's something we talk about in the book called a helper's high, which is very similar to a runner's high, which I rarely experience because I do not run unless somebody is chasing me. But you know that, you know, when people experience vigorous exercise afterwards, they feel really great. There's all these endorphins and serotonin getting released. Helping people actually causes a very similar neurochemical release and that people get this sense of high when they have been cho asked or chosen to help. And so I want to let you know that when you are letting people help you, it's not just theoretically that they're feeling good about it. They are chemically feeling good about it. Mm -hmm. There you go. That's a good argument. I will remember next time. The other thing I wanted to talk about was supporting your child when it, uh, your child is going through a tough time. And Sophie, you're quite honest about the fact that you did go through a tough time through, I think, in your teenage years, if I'm right. And I just wondered, I guess what what you what advice if so I, I'm asking this question because I have young children and I'm sure they will go through tough times and I'm interested and in what you as a younger person would advise a parent to do to make sure that we do the right thing so that was a long and rambling answer but basically some parenting advice would be very very welcome here <laughs> I got a good answer for you so that's perfect I got two answers one is instead of assuming that your way of helping is the right way, ask your kid, how can I be most helpful? And then the second thing is ask for feedback. So when you help, when you're not in a really stressful situation, ask your kid, what was that helpful? What can I do differently? And trust that they will be honest with you and trust that they know themselves well enough to give you a good answer of what kind of help they actually need. And Deb, what did you learn about supporting someone going through a tough time? I learned that it is ever evolving. And so what might be helpful today may not be helpful tomorrow. And what's helpful tomorrow may not be helpful the next day, which is, you know, part of the reason that our Go to Help book has 31 helping strategies is because, you know, on one day, Sophie might need me to give her a pep talk. And on the next day, she just needs me to, you know, 
empathize with where she is. And then on the third day, she wants me to problem solve with her. And so when we only have a couple of tools in our helping toolkit, which tends to be, as Sophie had said before, let me tell you how to fix it or let me fix it for you. When we only have those tools, we actually are not very help fluent, which is a term that we write about in the book. And so just expect that you are going to have to develop your help fluency or your child will not experience you as helpful. And one other thing I'll say, and and this is something that I learned from Sophie, is that the goal is to make sure that your child is helped. The goal can't be that you are the one. And that can be really hard on a parent's ego to be like, hold what do you mean I'm not the right person to help my child? This is my child. That can't be the goal that it's you. The goal has to be that they get help. Interesting. And it's again the same theme that you were talking about earlier, that if you help, you need to do what's best for the person that you're helping rather than make you feel amazing by donating lots of cherries to a food bank that doesn't need any cherries, for example. I'm going to come to our last questions soon, but I would la- I'm sure the listeners will be very interested in your books. Can you tell me where people can find out more to find out about your work, about your books? Sophie, if we start with you, I think you've, even, you've already written two books, is that right? Three. Three? Wow. So all the information about uh, books and speaking and all that sort of stuff would be on my website at sophieregal.com. And that's spelled S-O-P-H-I-E-R-I-E-G-E-L.com. Brilliant. And are you? what's the best way to connect with you? Is it Instagram, LinkedIn, or? My email is on the website as well, but my email is sophielregal at gmail.com. And I check my email multiple times a day. (laughs) Fantastic. What about you, Deb? Yep. Best way to reach me. Well, great way to reach me is on LinkedIn, Deborah Grayson Regal. And I'm pretty specific about that because my husband's sister is Deborah Regal and my brother's wife is Deborah Grayson. So I'm look for the woman in the magenta jacket. That's my LinkedIn <laughs> profile. That's a great way to reach me. And you can also visit me on my website, which is Deborah, D-E-B-O-R-A-H, Grayson, G-R-A-Y-S-O-N, Regal, R-I, E-G-E-L dot com. Fantastic. So we end all of our podcasts with practical tips for people to take away. And I'm going to throw you a curveball, I guess. I'm really interested, Sophie. I want my daughters to to feel as happy about their mother's career when they grow up. What are your top two or three practical things that someone with children could do this week to make sure that they feel their parent is present, even though they're working very long hours or traveling. Well, one thing I actually just talked about with a client was figuring out what your kids love language is. And when you do that, you're actually able to figure out how can I show them that I'm here for them? How can I show them love in the way that they actually receive it best? And so you can have them take a a love language quiz or just talk to them about it and figure out this is actually what I need to do to show my kid that I love them. So that's one thing. Another thing you can do is remind your kid that you are open to feedback. So you're a human being, you're going to make mistakes, and you're not perfect. So if your kid knows that they can tell you, hey, I didn't like the way you did that, or hey, would you be open to this new idea? 
they're much more likely to approach you with that sort of feedback. And so just letting your kid know that you're open to that is a really important step. Mm, that's excellent. And so often we don't use the skills that we are trained to use at work, like giving and receiving feedback within our family. So you know, that's an excellent advice. Deb, I know there's not one way of doing this, as in being a mother with a big career and bringing up children. But I would like to know if someone is listening to this and really would love to be present with their children, make them feel that they're valued, but they have a massive career and they, you know, they're only here for dinner twice and on Saturday morning they're on a golf course. What would be your practical thing that they could do this week so that they feel like, yeah, I'm okay, I'm, I'm doing a good enough job? Ask for help. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I, I know that sounds like a plant, but chances are you will not be able to provide your kids with quality time unless you are getting help in some other area of your life. And it could be a help as simple as ordering in dinner. It could be help, you know, sending the pet out to get groomed rather than you putting it in the bath. But chances are you are going to need some help to do it. And I would also, assuming your kid is of an age where they can communicate their thoughts and feelings, I think there is an important distinction between quality time and quantity time. And you might want to ask your kid whether they have a preference, right? So I think we have been trained to believe that quality time is inherently more important, but I've had plenty of time with my kids doing something called body doubling, which is where actually, it's like when kids parallel play with each other, they're actually not paying attention to each other, but they're just physically together. And so we will get a lot of stuff done just sitting in a room together, even if they're working on their homework, I'm working on something else. And, you know, Sophie's brother is, is working on a third thing. So don't assume that quality time is more important than, you know, logging minutes and hours. Mm, very well said. And I believe that latter point is supported by research as well. So yeah, we should definitely all follow your your advice. So a big thank you, Sophie. A big thank you, Deb. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast and a real honor to hear from you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed the podcast and you think a non-judgmental community of support would be really helpful to you, then I would love to hear from you as an application to the Leaders Plus Fellowship Program. As you know properly, this is designed to help you to identify where you want your career to head and will give you lots of support and encouragement along the way. And then most importantly, to help you make it possible to get there practically whilst being present with your family in whatever way you want that to be. Previous fellows have said it made them take really courageous steps that they never thought possible and also that they made lifelong friends and connections. In our last cohort, more than half have got promoted or got additional senior responsibility by the end of the program, and that's particularly impressive because most of them work part-time or flexibly. Plus, I think they've all got quite mavericky in a good way. They're all involved in some shape or form of driving wider change for working parents, be that mentoring other parents, be that changing policy in their organizations, whatever fits at that moment in their lives. It only takes about half a day a week uh, sorry, that would be a lot. Half a day a month. So I think it's more than doable. It's been designed with parents in mind. 
You can find all the details on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash cross-sector fellowship. And also, if you want us to talk to your employer, to your organization about offering this to their employees, i.e. you, then let me know and my colleague Joe or I can have a conversation with them. My email is verena at leadersplus.org.uk. On a completely unrelated note, I also feel passionate about gender equality in podcasting and I've recently learned that the top, you know, 100 podcasts, etc. It's extremely male-dominated, I think 90% male-dominated or something like that, depending on what stat you look at. And I thought that needs to change urgently. So if you want to help and <laughs> push forward female-led podcasts, then first of all, listen and share female-led podcasts. And if you think this podcast is, is good and useful, then also do share that, leave reviews and do all those things that increases the algorithm's prominence. So yeah, for example, a WhatsApp or signal message to some friends with a link to the podcast is always very welcome and very helpful. And hopefully it will help us smash this particular glass ceiling in the podcast world. See you next week and thank you so much for your support.